Hebrews chapter 10 for our New Testament reading. Verses 1 through 18 read. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, But a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The, New Test- the Old Testament reading in our sermon text is Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned 
and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore, me, restore to me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then... Will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings? Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, open up these words to our minds, to our hearts. Help us to understand your inspired and infallible word that we would grow by it, that we would learn from it, that we would be shaped and fashioned into the likeness of your Son. Lord, we need your presence. We need your Spirit. These things are too deep for us alone. Mere conjecture and understanding is not enough. We need your Spirit to implant this in our hearts. And so we pray for your presence. We pray for your direction. We pray for open eyes. In Christ's name, amen. As we've been going through psalms, we've covered a number of different types of psalms, and this is one of the seven penitential psalms. It is a psalm of confession. When we have done something wrong, and we come to God, and we confess, that means that we say with, Right? can be used in a couple different ways. We have a confession of faith. That's something that we say together. We say with each other. We're agreeing that this is true. And when we confess our sins to God, we're saying with God, it's true that this is wrong. Your law is right. I am wrong. This is sin. That is our confession that we bring to God. 
In this particular confession, we see from the, the prescript that it is from David after he sinned with Bathsheba. And just a brief summary of this account. Many of you are certainly familiar with the story. But, Bathsheba, but David was walking on his roof and saw Bathsheba bathing on her roof. And he was overcome with lust for her. And he knew that this woman was married, married to Uriah. And he sent messengers and took her over. And, it's, and he had an affair with her. And after this, time passed and she communicated with him and said that she was pregnant. And all of a sudden, King David wants to cover up what he's done. And so he calls Uriah, the husband, who's at the front lines of a battle, who is engaging in war for Israel, for God, for the king, and the, while the king is doing this. He calls him home, and he tries repeatedly over and over to get him to go home and be with his wife so he can cover up his sin. If he would go home and be with his wife would make sense that she was pregnant. But he wouldn't go. He had a sense of duty saying, all of my brothers are fighting. My commander is fighting. The ark of the Lord is at the, at the front of the battle. Why would I go home and eat dinner and be with my wife when this is happening? I, can't, I cannot do it. After repeated attempts, David stops trying to cover up his sin this way and rather sends Uriah to the very front line with a message to the people around him that once they go up to the most dangerous part of the battle, everybody back away from him so that he will be struck down and killed. And thereby, David finds another way to cover up his sin. He is later confronted by the prophet Nathan because what he has done, what he had done, the, the text in 2 Samuel says, greatly displeased the Lord. God was angry about this. And he sent his message to Nathan and convicted him. And this is David's confession of this sin. Him, him finally fessing up to it, not hiding it, not burying it. Not saying, it's not really wrong, I'm the king. Not saying, well, if nobody sees, then I guess nothing really happened, right? This is his saying, with God, agreeing with God, confessing, yes, I have sinned. He had such a hard time doing that. He went through all of these hoops and tried all of these different strategies just to avoid admitting his own despicable sin. He may have his own reasons, but what are your reasons for refusing to bring your sins to God? Is it because you don't want to believe that about yourself? That you're afraid that if I really admit that I've done this thing or that, I, that this is really wrong, that, that I'm not as good a person as I thought I was. Are 
Are you afraid that maybe what you've done is too wrong, too wicked, too bad for God to forgive? In any case, it generally boils down to fear, to not being able to go to God, whether it's a prideful fear or whether it's fear of God not really being the loving God he says he is. What we see in this passage is someone, King David, who has committed such a heinous sin. Like, if somebody in our midst did something like this, if somebody in our society or in our community or did something like this, who's going who's gonna to be on their side? This is appalling. This is a terrible thing that he has done. It is murder and adultery. Nobody's going to make an excuse for him. Nobody's going to be on his side on this. But here's a man who goes to God and finds forgiveness for his sins. It is not without repercussions in David's life. We'll talk about that in a little bit. God does not take his sin lightly at all. But this is also an account and a psalm that teaches us that there is nothing in your life that God cannot forgive. That he is not strong enough to forgive, that he is not merciful and loving enough to forgive. If you confess your sin and go to him through Christ. The beginning verses, verses 1 and 2, introduce the entire topic. This, this, is, this is a plea for mercy. Confessing to God is a plea for mercy. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. That is absolutely key. Have mercy on me according to these things. Not according to my status as king, Not because if something bad happens to me, well, look at all the people who depend on me. No, it's not according to me or my status. It's not, have mercy on me, God, according to all of the things that I have done for you in the past, all the battles that I've fought for you, all the good that I have done. Haven't you read all the stories? Haven't you seen my good works? You have to forgive me. Please forgive me according to how good I am. No. The only plea David has is to have mercy according to God's own character, to God's steadfast love, to God's abundant mercy. And according to those things, he requests him to blot out his transgressions, to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, and to cleanse him from sin. This is a Poetic repetition of the same idea over and over again, but they have different little nuances. And that's, that's not the major point, but just to see the picture that he's painting blot out is to like erase something, to remove something that has been written, to make it no longer uh, a part of the account. Blot it out. Blot out my transgressions that it would not be part of the record anymore. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. This word wash has to do with 
how it's actually specific, specifically used for laundering. It's, it's a word that means like to, to beat your wet laundry on the stone. That's how they, they cleaned their laundry. He wants to, to have not just the record of it removed, but he, he feels the presence of the sin in him, on him, and he needs to be cleansed. He needs to be cleaned from it for it to actually be taken from him. And the last image we see is cleanse me from my sin, which sounds to our ears very much the same as wash, but cleanse has to do with ritual purity in this case. So he's talking about how uh, in Israel things were ritually clean and unclean. And if you are unclean, you can't go into the presence of the Lord. There's an image and depiction of sin. You must be declared clean by the priest after going through certain steps, through certain sacrifices and rituals. You'd be declared clean. And so he wants the record to be stricken. He wants to be physically cleansed, clean, to be removed from him personally. And he wants to be declared clean by God. That is a big ask. That's a lot to expect from somebody who does not deserve it. But this is the confidence that we have in Christ. That we may request these things because this is what Christ has done for us. That he lived a life that had no record of transgressions. There's no sin on his record. We trust in him. He applies that to us. He washes us clean. And he pronounces us clean as well. Not just physically, but spiritually. The actual confession of David's sin takes place in verses 3 through 6. This is his confession. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. At this point, now, he's not denying it. He's not avoiding it. He's not burying it. They are ever before his face. He knows what they are. He's not hiding them. He's not denying them. My sin is ever before me. It is sin. And he follows this saying, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. How can he say such a thing in light of knowing that he basically sent people to drag Bathsheba over to him, first of all? We don't know what levels of um, uh, complicity there are there, but you can imagine with such a power dynamic, Bathsheba didn't have much of a choice. Secondly, he murders Uriah to cover his tracks. How can he say that he's only sinned against God when he's clearly abused Bathsheba and Uriah? The reason for this is that sin is not just a social construct. It is not agreement that you and I have together. It's the, sin is breaking God's law. And when we sin, we do harm other people. When I sin, 
it, I can sin against my, my own self. It says in, in 1 Corinthians 6, 18, it says, flee sexual immorality for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexually, the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And there's certainly cases where we sin against, and it harms people around us. It has effects that spiral out and cause harm and hurt. But the fact is that if you sin against me, you're not breaking my law. You're hurting me. You're doing something bad. But you're breaking God's law. You're breaking the law that he wrote that you are obligated to. And so when he confesses his sin, he's not saying, I broke my resolution to do better this year. Or I broke my agreement with this other person. Or I broke a law of a different God. No, I sinned when I broke your law. You are the one that I sinned against. It is your law that I broke. It is you that I ultimately need reconciliation with. He says, he admits that he has done evil in his sight so that you may be justified in your word and blameless in your judgment. And that is really, really a huge thing for him to say because the result of David's sin was that the child conceived with Bathsheba would die. That was God's judgment in that situation. And so as we're reading this and saying, what an awful thing to lose a child. What utter pain and loss. It is inconceivable almost to, to read and hear those words in the context. But David says, I can't blame you for how you have responded. Because of my murderous and adulterous heart. I cannot, I don't deserve better than what you have given me. You are just in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin. My mother conceived me. Did my mother conceive me? This is the next verse, verse 5, as he continues his confession. David is admitting his own depravity here, his own sinfulness from birth. He's not tossing his mother under the bus. He's not saying it's her fault. He's not saying it's not my fault. I was just born this way. He was saying, this, this, is, who I, this is who I am. I'm living in character with my own iniquity and depravity. not making an excuse for himself, but rather just admitting his character that he is living out of. This goes starkly against how our culture views sin and how our culture views uh, infants and babies and how they're perfect and pure and innocent 
when they come out and then they get muddied as time goes on. But the scripture tells us that we are born in sin, that we inherit sin from Adam. And that as we grow, we're not just we're not getting muddied up by the world, but rather we're living out who we are. Broken, sinful, and wretched. Rebellious against the Lord. And so when we sin, we don't we can't say, well, no, the world made me this way. No, my mom made me this way. It's her fault. She she did this, she said that, she raised me this way when it should have been that way. We can't blame all these other things and say, these are the things that made me wicked. We have to say, I'm a thing that sinned. And when I sin, it's, it's me living out of who I am. And I confess, I say with the Lord that this is wrong and I don't want it. I want to be cleansed from it. I, I want to be washed clean from it. I want it to be erased from me. I don't want it. It's really, really hard to confess things like this. This goes against the stories that we're told, the things that we're shaped by. And it hurts our pride. It hurts our sense of self and our esteem to call ourselves sinners. So how can we possibly, how can we truly, honestly confess to the Lord, I am a sinner, what I have done is my own fault, not the result of other people putting it upon me, not the result of society or my parents, but Lord, I am a sinner. I have done what is wrong in your sight. I have broken your law. How can we have that? How can we have the guts to say that? How can we go to God like that and say those words? We can abandon the fear that holds us back from that. We can cast it aside and we can go to God with confidence and admit our fault and say, yes, I was wrong. Yes, I am wrong. But I'm not afraid because God is abundant mercy because God is steadfast in his love and God has shown these things to us not just and David knew it to be true David knew it to be true through the images and the shadows of the Old Testament the love of God showed forth to him and he knew it but how much more do we know it to be true because God the Father sent his only begotten son his cherished, beloved one. He sent him on your behalf. The sinful one. The wicked one. The one who lives out who you are and it's wrong. He sent his beautiful son for you. So that you would have your record of transgressions blotted out, erased from the logbook. So that you and who you are would be washed and changed. That you would be something different than you were born. That you would be something beautiful and lovely. 
something that does not operate that way anymore. That he would cleanse you. That he would declare to you and to all the world at the time of judgment, he would say, this person is clean. This person has been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's something that we can hold on to and say, we don't have to be afraid to bring out our sins. We don't have to, to be afraid to bring them to the Lord. We don't have to be afraid to admit fault because we have a God who forgives. Remember how David tried to cover his sins repeatedly over and over and over again? How many, I don't remember how many times he attempted to get Uriah to go back home, go back home. Just be with your wife so I can put this all behind me and nobody will have to know and I can forget about it and cover it up. And when that didn't work, he found another way to cover it up. Worked and worked and worked to try to make it go away. And the only way the sin can go away is through the power of God's forgiveness the only thing that will take it away. And it won't just cover it up and make it invisible to other people's eyes. It will really remove it from you. It will take it out of your heart. And in eternity, there will not be an account of your sins because they will be placed on Christ. You can go to the Lord with confidence. You can abandon that fear. You can leave it at the door and be honest with what you have done, with who you are. Here we see that his confession precedes his official request to be restored. He requests next in the following verses to be restored. We see in verses 7 through 12. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. This verse is key. Because so many times we, we, we may bring our, our sins to God. We may, we may say them out loud, and then we just don't feel that forgiveness. I finally got around to admitting I'm wrong, but when I say them to the Lord, I just don't feel forgiven. When he says the words, purge me with hyssop, he's speaking about a ritual in which he, the priest would take this plant called hyssop, would bundle it up, and it would be dipped into a, a mixture of blood and water. It would be used as a sprinkler to be sprinkled on a leper or on somebody who had touched a dead body, and that person had been considered unclean. And that action the priest uses, and at the end of this ceremony, he declares that the person is clean. He is cleansing him with the sprinkling of blood upon them. That is what is washing them and cleansing them of their ritual impurity. And so what David is using here is that image of ritual impurity as being the image of his real, actual sin. He needs God to sprinkle him with the blood that will cleanse him truly from real sin and wickedness. Not just a ritual sense, 
but a true sin, uh, but a true sin and wickedness. David was able to look at that and to say that and then say, and I shall be his image of who God was, how powerful he was to forgive sins, and how abundant his mercy was, how steadfast his love was, those key words from the beginning, show mercy to me according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. His view of God's love is so great that he can say with confidence, if you wash me, I will be clean. If you pour, sprinkle that blood on me, I will be cleansed. If you wash me, I will be whiter than snow. And so the encouragement for you is, if you do bring your sins to the Lord, if you confess them, know that God's love is greater than your sin. That God's power to forgive is greater than your sin. You are not bigger than God. You're not bigger than his love. His grace is greater than your sin. You may have a voice in your your head saying, well, God is holy. He is holy, holy, holy. How can it be true if God is holy? He cannot be in the presence of sin. And I I saw my sin, and it it is big. I don't know if I can believe that. That's true. God is absolutely, perfectly, purely holy. He will not abide even a little, tiny, itty-bitty speck of sin. But once again, we have insight that David didn't fully have. And that is, through Jesus Christ, every single speck of your sin, no matter how great, will be placed upon him. That you are white as snow, cleansed and washed and pure in the eyes of God if you rely on Christ. So this holy, holy, holy God embraces you, loves you, cherishes you because as he looks on you, he sees the perfect holiness of his only begotten son. It is not according to your works. It is not according to your birth or your stature or anything about you. Because when you start to rely on that, you ought to be depressed. You ought to be scared. There's no way to go to God like that. It is only through Christ that we have any confidence. And it is through Christ that we ought to have that confidence, a great confidence. And so he continues, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Using these same words from the beginning. And he then goes in 10 to 12 to really not just ask for these sins to be removed, but for his inner self to be renewed. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold with me a willing spirit. He understands that he can't just be washed and then left. He needs to be washed, cleansed, cleansed, purified, and he needs what is going on inside to be changed. 
put a right spirit within me. Shape me the way I'm supposed to be shaped. Make me the way I'm supposed to be. And he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. There are three popular interpretations of this. The first is outright wrong. It's that we can lose our salvation. He's asking this because we can lose our salvation. The Holy Spirit can be taken from us. This contradicts the rest of Scripture's account on that. But the remaining two options are, one, that David is praying this in a sort of hypothetical manner. He's saying, I know that you won't abandon me, but if you did, who could blame you? And so please don't act in that way. And the third option is understanding from the Old Testament texts, the kings like David and Saul and other rulers had God's Holy Spirit upon them. That they are anointed not just in oil, but, but with, with his Holy Spirit. You read that with Samson. Whenever he gets his mighty strength, it says the Holy Spirit rushed upon him. And it says of King Saul, after he had fallen in sin and disrepute, it says in 1 Samuel 16, 14, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit of the Lord tormented him. And so there's this special status of the ruler of Israel who has the Holy Spirit upon them. And David is afraid that God is going to take this away from him. That he would be abandoned. He wouldn't have God's power behind him. He wouldn't have that authority and blessing in his ruling of the nations. I tend to lead toward this interpretation. The other interpretation is also... Um, it is, it is good in light of all of Scripture, but I think this one points us more specifically to the fact that there are temporary earthly results of our sins. Um, we are redeemed, we are loved, and we are going to be in eternity with God forever. But if I go steal a car today, you better bet there's going to be some temporary earthly results of that. Even if I'm really, really, really good at it, I do not believe God will let me get away from it. Because he loves me and I'm his son. And there will be real earthly results that are unpleasant. And if I'm caught in a situation like that, you better believe I'm going to be crying out, God, please don't cause this or this or this or this or this to happen. Please, 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 I was wrong. And I don't know what God would do in those cases, but he is sovereign, he is holy, and he is just. And there are results from our sins in this world. The final section of this chapter shows him planning and rejoicing in the Lord's forgiveness. We sung these words in the song earlier. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. That's a call to us. Because we are the body of the redeemed. 
We are the people who know the depth of our sins and who we were before Christ saved us. We know that we are not better than any other person. And we have been given this amazing news, this cleansing that comes from God alone. How can we but help telling this good story? Yes, yeah, sinners are going to learn from me because if they're depressed about their situation, if they're afraid and they need a better story, if they need an account, if they need a response to what is going on in their life, I've got one. I've got an amazing story for them because I, am, I was in the same boat. I'm a sinner just like them. And I had really good news given to me. How can I help but give that same good news to them? He calls to the Lord then to open up his lips and he will declare his praise. And finally, he talks about sacrifice. This is quoted in the Hebrews passage that we read earlier. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. A sacrifice, the sacrifices of the Lord are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. David is not saying that he's never going to give any sort of offerings. Um, in fact, in the next few verses, we see uh, him saying, verse 19, Then, after these things, then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings and all of these things. But what he has said here at the beginning rings far more true than he could have ever expected. Because Christ is that right sacrifice. He is that true sacrifice that came at the right time. He is the sacrifice that God would truly delight in. He is the sacrifice who comes and is applied to those who have a broken spirit and a contrite thinking back on this psalm, we should remember that we can, in the midst of our sin, whether we want to hide it or hide from God, we can cast off fear. We can admit our faults fully, without qualification. We can ask for far, far more than we deserve. Because God is abounding in steadfast love and mercy, as we see most fully in the work of Jesus. And as a result of this great grace, we now have lived the truth of the gospel for those of us who trust in him. And we are thus empowered to speak its truth to those who need to hear it to sing God's praises fervently with joy, and to rejoice in the true sacrifice that was given once for all, our only Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer.
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it contains. Lord, we pray not only that the truth would be in our minds, but that it would seep into our hearts, that it would cause us to abandon our fears, that we would not see you as a small God, but a great God. That we would not see your love as something insignificant or small compared to our own sin, but Lord, that we would see how wonderful and vast, how deep your love is for us. Lord, may this shape us and fashion us. May it make us people who have your gospel on our lips day and night confess when we are wrong and praise when we are forgiven. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.